Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, February the 21st. And thank you so much for tuning in here with me today. If you have any burning questions or a subject you'd like to hear more about, or maybe you just want to say hi, please don't hesitate to contact me either by email at jandreas at stingray.com or hit me up on Twitter at Jeffrey underscore Andreas. I got a good show lined up here today, and it's all set to focus on the BC budget. In the back half of the show, I'll be joined by Alex Hemingway with the BC office for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. I spoke with Alex earlier this year talking about how the budget doesn't always need to be balanced in order to be effective, but the government once again was touting a balanced budget. So I'll be speaking with Alex Hemingway uh, to kick off the back half of the show to continue that conversation and just get a reaction to the overall B.C. budget itself, which, of course, was tabled this past Tuesday. I'll also be speaking with the president of the B.C. Teachers Federation. Terry Mooring was on record this week saying the budget falls short when it comes to dealing with ongoing shortages across the province. She says currently there are not enough supports for special needs students, and that that's an issue being that's been plaguing the province for years. So she will come on the program at the tail end of the show to talk a little bit more about that, about the budget as a whole, and maybe a little bit on that current contract situation. And if time permits, I may even dig into a Friday headline or two to end things off. But to begin today's show, I wanted to dig in a little bit on this new sugar tax. The B.C. government made a decision to charge the 7% provincial sales tax on sugary soda drinks. Several groups have said that this is a great move to help improve the lives of British Columbians. I personally have a few reservations that a 7% tax increase on drinks is going to have much of an impact on consumption, but I have been proven wrong before, and perhaps that will be the case again here. I'm joined now by the Heart and Stroke Foundation's Director of Government and Health Relations for BC and Yukon, Jeff Summers. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time here to come on and speak to me today. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, nice to be here. So, I mean, this was a move, the B.C. government adding an additional 7% to sugary drinks. It was a move that was well-received by the Heart and Stroke Foundation. I mean, uh, just to kind of kick things off here, if I could just kind of get a, a general sense of why this was something that the Heart and Stroke Foundation feels is such a positive step forward. Well, we know that uh, sugar contributes to or, or overconsumption of sugar, uh, which is very widespread in Canadian diets. Um, is a major contributor to a whole range of uh, chronic disease and health issues, ranging from type 2 diabetes to uh, obesity, um, certainly heart disease and stroke, uh, hypertension, and even to a range of cancers. Um, so sugar consumption has been steadily increasing over the past decades. Um, and we know that, first of all, we know that um, sugars comprise about 20% of the calories that people get from prepackaged foods and beverages in Canada, and that uh, sugary drinks are the single largest contributor of sugar in the diet of people in Canada. So anything that is, is potentially discouraged, the consumption or the overconsumption of sugar is a good thing from our perspective. Now, when talking about, I guess, drinks specifically, and, and you mentioned that, uh, you know, a large percentage of our sugar consumption comes from sugary drinks. Do you think that's something that a lot of people are even aware of? Um, well, you know, that's a good question. A lot of people drink a lot of pop. And, and just by the way, this particular measure in BC is, does not cover all sugary drinks. 
it just is focused on um, soda or soft drinks right. primarily, which is what we think of as pop. But the minister did make a point uh, in response to a question from the media on budget day that this was a, she saw this as a first step. But yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how aware people are. We've been doing a lot of work trying to promote awareness of sugar. And we know, in fact, that um, consumption of pop per se has actually is actually on the decline and people are switching to other drinks. But those drinks are also sugary drinks as well, a lot of them. So uh, even though people are switching away from pop, um, uh, uh, the industry is coming up with a whole range of other substitutes. Right. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who maybe, you know, drank a lot of Pepsi or, or Coke or whatever the case may be, and then have switched to some form of juice, probably thinking that they are much better off. But you're saying there's still a, a lot of sugar in those other alternatives, and it's not necessarily uh, a significant health benefit, I guess, to switch from, from a, a soda pop to a juice or, or something along those lines. Yeah, well, and even uh, even with fruit juice, um, a lot of fruit juices, those are free sugars. So even though they may not be added sugars necessarily, although there is a lot of fruit juice with added sugar, there are also uh, the, uh, the, the act of making juice rather than um, eating the actual pulp of the uh, fruit um, uh, changes the nature of sugar and how it's metabolized in, in, in your system. Hmm. Interesting. Um, one one thing I did take away from the release that you had put out here earlier in the week from uh, the Heart and Stroke Foundation was just talking about the the 7% increase in tax and just how a tax increase on these types of products can have an impact on consumption. Like I was saying off the top, I, I have a hard time believing that a simple 7% tax increase is going to have a significant impact on what is consumed by the general public. But um, from, from the information that I'm seeing in your release is that, you know, there has been cases where just a simple you know, not a significant tax increase, but uh, even a small one does have an impact on the amount of product that people are consuming. And in this case, we're talking soda. So you you do believe, and there are examples, that a small tax increase will have an impact on consumption. Well, I think the nearest example is, or maybe the, the clearest example is in Mexico, where they imposed one peso, a uh, tax of one peso per ounce um, on sugary drinks. So, so that was about uh, around a 10% tax. And they got up to a 12% decrease in, in um, consumption of pop among the general population. And among low-income households, who were the biggest consumers um, of pop uh, uh, population-wide, uh, there was a 17% decrease. So we know that taxes can be effective, Seven um, percent. I mean, we'll just have to watch and see what happens in 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 in, in BC. Certainly, we know uh, the, the government pointed out that they were focusing primarily on uh, adolescents, on, on the 14 to 18 year old age group. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that within people, daily consumption of of regular soft drinks goes from 68 grams a day. Uh, in the four to eight year old age group and up to 376 grams a day in the 14 to 18 year old age group among boys and among girls it goes from 47 to 179 grams. So, uh, you know, among boys that's like uh, almost a 600% increase when they hit teenage years and with girls it's uh, it's about a 400% increase. So if it even puts a dent in that um, increase in consumption, that's a good thing. Yeah, that is a significant uh, increase in in consumption 
Um, I guess, how does that change going into adulthood? I mean, you mentioned going from adolescence into your teen years and the significant increase we see, but I understand there is a bit of a reduction as we get a little bit older and get into adulthood. Can you talk about that at all and just, uh, you know, how maybe once we hit our 20s, we're a little more responsible in, in what we consume? Well, yeah, it, well, it, that's an interesting thing because consumption of pop does go down or, or of sugary drinks does go down as people enter adulthood. Um, but, you know, it, considering that when you're, when you're a teenager, uh, your body's in, form, in, in formative stages, overconsumption of sugar at that point can have uh, run-on effects um, into adulthood. So it's important to really uh, try and cut down that, the amount of sugar that is consumed by, uh, by, by teenagers. Um, and, you know, certainly people do decrease the amount of pop and uh, other uh, other sugary drinks, um, but there's still a staggering amount of sugary drinks out there. Um, if the total volume of sugary drinks available to a person per year is 162 liters every year, so that's that's a potential. So there's that much pop sloshing around the country, or not uh, not just pop sugary drinks, mm-hmm. which works out to potential consumption. Of, of sugary drinks is 444 milliliters per person per day. Like that's that's really staggering. I yeah. mean, nobody could probably consume that much. But you know, it's like we're in an ocean of of, of sugary sugary drinks. It's basically liquid candy. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds delicious, but maybe isn't great for your health. Well, Jeff, I think that's pretty much all I have for questions for you right now. Anything else that you want to add before I let you go? Just to note that the history um, of the tax exemption was was because sugary drinks were considered food, um, which are not subject to provincial sales tax. But, you know, when you really think about it, since this is liquid candy, it's not really a, it's not really a justifiable exemption. Yeah, I think that's good to point out as well. So thank you so much, Jeff, for your time. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to this issue. And, uh, yeah, definitely some, some good information there. So thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Awesome. That was Jeff Summers, the uh, Director of Government and Health Relations for BC and UConn at the Heart and Stroke Foundation. Coming up after the break, I'm going to be continuing this conversation on sugar consumption and this sugar tax and dig a little bit more into the impacts on our youth specifically. I am set to be joined by the chairman of the Childhood Obesity Foundation after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the show here on Friday, February 21st. In the last segment, I spoke with the Heart and Stroke Foundation about this new sugar tax that the province is implementing on sugary drinks, specifically soft drinks. We touched a little bit on on the kids and how this will impact them, but now it's time to really dig into that age group and the issues that this new tax could potentially help to solve. Joining me now to provide a little bit more on that perspective is the chair of the Childhood Obesity Foundation, Dr. Tom Orshosky. Dr. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest. Yeah, so, I mean, what what is, I guess, the biggest takeaway that you have from what was coming down on, on Tuesday here with the B.C. budget? I mean, uh, a 7% tax increase, to me, it doesn't sound like a, a big amount. It doesn't sound like something that would deter too many people from necessarily buying, uh, you know, a soft drink when they're out on a hot day or whatever the case may be. But uh, from what I understand, you know, there is some research out there that says even just a small tax increase is going to have a significant impact on how much we as British Columbians consume. Can you tell me a little bit about how this will impact just our kids and how much they they consume? Well, I would say that in terms of the evidence base around a sales tax 
and reduction in consumption, there isn't a lot to go with. What the evidence uh, is solid around is an excise tax, which is different. Uh, in Canada, only the federal government can institute an excise tax. And the difference is that cost uh, increase appears on the sticker price of the product on the shelf. So if you're looking at the shelf and you have a sweetened beverage, say a liter cost $1.20, the unsweetened beverage not subject to the excise tax is only a dollar, then you get a nudge in purchasing towards a cheaper product. And also that, that price differential is probably also a nudge in terms of why is this product being taxed and you think more about the health implications of it. A sales tax, which is what we're doing here in BC now, and really what we're doing is nothing overly bold. We're bringing our tax policy in alignment with almost every other province in Canada. You don't see that price differential until you look at your sales receipts because you're not aware that that this one product is subject to the sales tax and the other one isn't. So how much effect it'll actually have on purchasing at the cash register, uh, I think is a little bit up in the air, but the fact that everyone's now talking about this is making people realize that drinking sugary water uh, is actually not that good for you. The overconsumption of sugary water isn't good for you. And I think consumers in British Columbia, parents in British Columbia, are going to think twice about their purchases. I think that's going to be the real return on investment here. Okay, so the, really the, the PR almost that is coming as a result of this conversation starter is really more valuable, you think, than the actual sales tax itself. Is, is that That's how I understand what you're saying, basically. Absolutely. I think I, I think taxes on sugary products are important, but it should be an excise tax that only the federal government can do. But these sort of discussions are really important because uh, there's a lot of marketing around drinking sugary drinks uh, in favor of it, and kids are bombarded by it, adults are as well. So we, we become sort of numb to the fact that you're drinking sugar water. All these extra calories that you're consuming with a meal tend to get stored, and it doesn't get stored as muscle. This is something we really have to think twice about in terms of our daily habits. And, uh, you know, you with the uh, Childhood Obesity Foundation, um, you know, just how much of an impact, I guess, does... um consuming these types of beverages in our younger years and in our teens sort of influence um, what our health outcomes look like uh, into adulthood. Can you talk a little bit about just how much it is consumed when we are, you know, younger, when we're in our teenage years and we're probably more likely to want to drink, uh, you know, Pepsi and Coke and that kind of stuff as opposed to, uh, you know, just having a glass of water? Um, you know, just how significant of an impact is that when we are, uh, you know, in those teenage years? It can be quite significant. So uh, in those age demographics, the higher, the highest consuming group are teenage males. And in Canada, on average, they're consuming between four to 600 mils per day of a sugary drink. Now, this is an average, meaning that there's probably about a third of kids that don't drink at all. So those who drink the products are drinking a lot. And it only takes an extra 100 calories per day to gain a pound of fat per month. So as was for, for some youth, as a result of their sugary drink consumption, they are putting on excess weight and graduating into adulthood already overweight or obese. And it's very difficult to turn this around. So the simplest way to get rid of added sugar in a Canadian diet is to decrease the amount of sugary drinks that we consume. Can you say that stat one more time for me? A hundred calories a day. Um, I already forgot it, but uh, oh, well, but an extra hundred calories per day, every day, can re- can result in a pound of fat gained per month. So it doesn't take a lot of extra calories 
to add up over a month. So it's, it's small little bits here and there which are generally responsible for the excess weight gain uh, that people experience. Yeah, that's a, a kind of a staggering stat, just uh, from my own perspective, just thinking about how much I uh, eat sometimes on a, on a monthly basis. Um, so what, with that in mind, I mean, just what kinds of um, health issues can result from that overconsumption of sugary beverages? What sorts of concerns uh, can result uh, for those younger people into adulthood? Like, I mean, we're talking about type 2 diabetes. We're talking, I spoke with the Heart and Stroke Foundation earlier, and there's obviously concerns that, um, you know, these types of overconsumption of these sugary beverages can lead to to heart issues and and uh, potentially cause strokes i guess later in life what uh, what are the immediate i guess concerns um for for younger kids is it obesity and diabetes are those sort of the big two they're the big two so when you when sugary drinks have some unique properties and i don't want to get too deep into the biochemistry of it all but uh the the sugar is sucrose or high fructose corn syrup. It's a combination of two different sugars. One of those sugar uh, elements, fructose, is linked with the development of fatty livers. So we are seeing an epidemic of fatty liver disease in children and youth. And you, you can't just look at someone and see that they have a fatty liver. It's something you have to do by ultrasound. That's probably related to excess sugar in the diet. So in terms of health implications in childhood and youth, it's not an obvious one, but we're, that's one of the first things that we see. The sugary drink consumption, though, then causes excess weight gain. And if excess weight gain is present for a long period of time, even in adolescence, that's when we begin to see type 2 diabetes, which we never used to see in teens, but we're beginning to see uh, it develop now. Most of the ill health really appears into the 30s, 40s, and 50s from prolonged exposure to being overweight. So that's heart disease, type 2 diabetes, 13 different cancers and strokes. But sugary drinks have unique properties in that regardless of your weight, you can have a what appears to be a healthy weight, but if you have a high sugary drink consumption, you're at increased risk for heart disease and type 2 diabetes. So this product, when consumed in excessive amounts, so we're not talking one or two drinks per week, that's quite a safe amount, but mm -hmm. one or two drinks per day, which a significant part of the population consume, is associated with very significant health risks. Well, Dr. Wachowski, thank you so much for taking the time. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but uh, there's a lot of interesting information there. And um, yeah, now I'm uh, getting into my 30s here, so I guess it sounds like I got to start smartening up and, and worry about what I consume a little bit more. But uh, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Awesome. That was Dr. Tarm Warshawski, Warshawski, excuse me. Um, he is the uh, chairman of the Childhood Obesity Foundation. Uh, yeah, talking about that 7% increase in taxes to our sugary drinks. Hopefully it will have a positive impact. The government sure says it will. Um, some health professionals say it will. Um, we'll just have to wait and see if that is indeed the case. Although, like Dr. Wachowski was saying, that maybe a few more steps need to be taken as well. Coming up next, how does the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives feel about this week's B.C. budget that was tabled on Tuesday? I'll be speaking with Alex Hemingway after the break. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, February the 21st. And thank you so much for tuning in with me here today. The B.C. budget was tabled here earlier this week. We've now had a couple of days to digest it, and I'm joined now by Alex Hemingway with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives here in B.C. Alex, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come on here. 
Yeah, glad to be with you. So can I just get your kind of initial reaction, I guess? You know, we've had a little bit of time here to, to see what has come down as of Tuesday. Um, you know, I understand that uh, the CCPA was pretty happy with some of the things that were presented here. Um, so maybe just uh, to start, if I can get kind of an overall sense of how uh, you, you are feeling as, uh, you know, your position there with the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives. Yeah, well, I think what we saw is is mainly a, a stay the course budget. So it it's for the most part following through on uh, commitments that were actually made uh, in the previous two budgets, particularly back in 2018. So you had some pretty ambitious three-year plans for investments in areas like childcare, housing, uh, uh, climate, and uh, we're seeing that funding ramp up as expected and even go a little bit further in some cases. Uh, there's a couple of uh, interesting new tidbits in the budget that we could get into, uh, but but overall uh, our, our perspective was that actually even though we're seeing important investments in these areas, particularly uh, uh, when it comes to housing, when it comes to childcare and poverty, there's still a lot more that we need to do and we actually have the fiscal uh, and economic room in BC to be more ambitious than what we saw in this budget. Uh, one, one note that I have seen, um, you know, sort of have a couple of different takes on or sides too, is the new tax bracket that was uh, uh, implemented or will be implemented as a result of this budget. Um, and, you know, we've seen the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation's, you know, not happy with the fact that this new tax bracket has been uh, created, but it sounds like that's something that uh, you are, are pretty happy to see come, come, come about and, and bring a few extra tax dollars here to the province. Um, can you just talk a little bit about your stance right now on, on that uh, new 1% tax bracket? Yeah, so this was a surprise uh, to us, but good news, and, and we've been recommending bringing in a new tax bracket uh, that focuses on the 1%. That's exactly what we see in the budget. We would have brought it in at a bit of a higher rate, uh, but yeah, that, that that's excellent to see. We have, you know, we have extreme levels of inequality in this province, as people know, and uh, to be honest, I, I think, it, you know, you're going to be hard-pressed to find too many people that don't think it's right for uh, the, the very richest in our province to chip in a little bit more so we can make the, some of the crucial investments that we know we need, you know, when we face, uh, you know, these big crises that I, I referenced around uh, climate, housing, uh, uh, child care, where we know investing publicly can make a big difference and actually uh, investing publicly can strengthen our economy in the medium and long term as well. Do you think it goes far enough to help alleviate, uh, you know, things like, well, I'll say homelessness as one example, when you're talking about, uh, you know, making affordable housing more available? Does it go far enough in these areas, in your opinion? Well, no, it doesn't. And, you know, one of the things that we were very disappointed about is to see a no increase in the welfare or disability rates in our province and as part of poverty reduction plan that's been committed to. Uh, if we're really going to address that issue, those rates need to rise. Uh, we did see uh, 200 new uh, um, modular housing units. So th these are these uh, uh, new forms of supportive housing that are coming online very quickly to address the homelessness crisis. Great to see those 200 additional units. That brings it to uh, 2,400 units that have been uh, committed to over the past few years. Uh, but unfortunately, that those homelessness rates are, are very persistent and additional investment is needed in that housing area as well. Not just for the homelessness uh, piece, which is you know perhaps the most urgent uh, 
uh, aspect of it, but uh, in terms of investment in uh, uh, affordable housing for middle class people, uh, that's uh, that's needed as well. We see that investment ramping up. It's not going as far as it needs to, and you know that. The, People may think, you know, well, we've got to sort of strike a middle ground here. You know, you can't always go as fast as you would like. Uh, the, the counterpoint to that is that when we don't meet these uh, crucial social needs, uh, housing for people, uh, ensuring people aren't left in poverty, making sure uh, people have a place to put their kids in uh, childcare uh, so they can go to work, that in itself, the, the failure to address those needs uh, puts a drag on our economy. So it's actually, we know it pays off economically in, in the medium and long term to uh, uh, push those investments higher. That means people are uh, better able to participate in society, go to work, uh, and, and, and be productive uh, if we meet those social needs. Uh, so it's, it's the right thing to do, but it's also uh, the prudent thing to do would be to go further than what we see in this budget. Uh, I think this point kind of follows up on that nicely, is, and I believe we have actually talked about this before, was um, the, the province basically at all costs making sure it balances the budget, right, and, and trying to basically come in at net zero. And we talked about this, I believe it was a month or two ago, you had done a piece just yeah. talking about, uh, you know, that that's not necessarily the best way to go about putting a budget together is to make sure it's always balanced. So uh, I just wanted to get your, uh, you know, kind of to reiterate that point that we had uh, on our previous discussions about a balanced budget and, and why this one, you know, it balanced sounds nice, I guess, from a, from a voter's standpoint, but uh, from a, an opportunity to put more money into some of these social programs, uh, a bit of a, a missing, missing the boat target here on that regard. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that. So uh, there are a couple things here. One is, uh, and and so it, it, it's good news that we're raising a, a bit of extra revenue from those top one percent uh, of earners, so we can add a bit of ambition that way. The pattern that we see in B, BC budgets and that we've seen under multiple governments is that uh, each year extra amounts of money are socked away into not just the surplus, but contingency funds, uh, forecast allowances, and very conservative assumptions that are made about economic growth, so the government assumes the economy is going to grow substantially slower than private sector forecasters actually suggest. And uh, the result of all of that is that year after year, we're usually uh, tucking away a billion dollars or more in money that's left unspent. And that's because, you know, there's natural variation uh, in, in the budget over the course of the year, and they're trying to set things up to make sure there's a surplus no matter what. And, you know, for the reasons that we were just talking about, if you moments ago when you sock that money away that actually could be used to meet really urgent social needs like addressing that housing crisis, investing in childcare, dealing with uh, uh, the climate crisis, uh, you're actually getting a worse payoff by socking that money away than you would if you invested it in meeting those social needs. Uh, payoff both in terms of you know what's sort of right and, and sort of morally needed to meet those social needs, but also in terms of the economic payoff that you're going to see in the medium and long term. So it's it sounds prudent to sock that extra money away, but when you're actually getting a worse return for it, it's not economically responsible after all. So that's why we'd like to see those investments increase and, and sort of break out of that straitjacket that we've built for ourselves in D.C. by saying sort of from a political point of view that you must have a surplus every year. Mm-hmm. I like that analogy of a, of a straitjacket. It definitely feels sometimes like uh, the coffers are a little bit confined to uh, to one point of view and don't necessarily look at others. 
Uh, I think that's pretty much all I had for you for questions right now, Alex. I know we could probably talk about the BC budget for uh, a lot longer than this, but um, anything else that you wanted to highlight here just while I, while I have you? Yeah, one other piece I would leave you with is, so if you ask the relatively fiscally conservative folks like uh, the credit rating agencies, even they will tell you uh, that BC has room to raise additional revenue to invest in, in areas we care about. So that's another way to do it besides, you know, using up some of those surplus funds. And in fact, if, if BC was spending the same share of our total economic pie of our GDP each year on our public spending as we were back in 2000, if we were spending at that same rate today, we'd actually have $7 billion available additionally each year uh, to invest in some of those social priorities uh, that we've talked about, childcare, housing, that we're sometimes told are, are pie in the sky, but actually we're an incredibly rich province, uh, and it's really a question of how we use that wealth and if we're willing to uh, harness it to meet the really big challenges that I think folks uh, feel that we're facing in this province. Well, Alex, thank you so much for taking the time. Always appreciate you coming on and speaking with me. Uh, I think you uh, have some, some great insights to contribute here, and uh, just uh, I want to thank you again for your time. Thanks a lot for uh, having me on, Jeff. Right on. That was Alex Hemingway with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Coming up next, the BC Teachers Federation was not overly happy with Tuesday's budget. I'll be joined by the president of the BCTF, Terry Mooring, after this. So please stick around. More Jeff Andrea show coming up next. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back into the show here on Friday. Thank you so much for tuning in on what is essentially being a budget edition of the Jeff Andreas Show. Um, we got uh, Terry Mooring coming up here with the PC Teachers Federation to talk about some funding that was announced in the budget, which of course was tabled on Tuesday. Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show here today. Oh, you're very welcome. So the big announcement, we'll, we'll just kind of, I know you've talked on this a little bit in other platforms here, but $339 million over three years to hire 4,200 teachers. That was sort of the big talking point that was coming out of Tuesday from a teacher's perspective. Uh, that sounds like a lot to me just when I hear those raw numbers, but uh, I guess there are some concerns for the BCTF uh, around those figures. Yeah, it's actually not to hire 4,200 teachers. There, teachers have already been hired, um, and there'll be some more teachers that will need to be hired because we have increasing student enrollment. So that amount of money reflects about 1.8% of an increase for education funding, and that's good. I mean, you know, we've been through many, many years of uh, education underfunding, and so, you know, 1.8% helps to put us on the path towards making that up, though it certainly doesn't get us where we need to be in terms of education funding in BC. Um, so most of it will be dedicated uh, towards increased student enrollment, which is good. Um, another part of that money will go towards um, supporting teachers uh, in the teaching of Indigenous perspectives and knowledges, and that's great because we've been uh, asking for that sort of support for a long time. And there's some um, additional money for children in care as well. So that that's all good. It's, it's extremely modest um, and certainly isn't what we did here in the budget was money um, towards addressing the teacher shortage, which is very significant in BC. Yeah, can you, I mean, we've talked about this when I've had you on here before, but I mean, you're talking about a teacher shortage and there were a number of concerns when it comes to, uh, you know, supports for special needs students and things along those lines. Uh, yes, just how significant of an issue is it right now here in British Columbia? It's, it's 
worsened a lot in BC um, and and particularly impacted are the north coast, north, central and uh, peace regions of the province. So the teacher shortage affects everyone everywhere. So, you know, you're quite right in, in larger centres and in, in the Okanagan and Metro in the Fraser Valley, it tends to be what is happening. Our specialist teachers get pulled from their jobs in working with students, um, often students that need a lot of additional support um, to go into classrooms. That was happening on a day-to-day basis. Now that's happening for longer term, and so those specialist positions get posted often and aren't filled because they're difficult to fill, even in larger areas. But what's happening... um, in addition to that, in, in the other regions of the province, the more northern regions of the province, is that we just don't have enough qualified, certified teachers. And so we have individuals in classrooms that don't have any teacher training, aren't certified teachers, and in many cases also don't have any post-secondary um, education or very limited post-secondary education, not in any kind of field related to education. So we have a lot of concerns about that. Um, Prince George has an advertisement out right now for enthusiastic individuals with or without uh, post-secondary education to apply to the Prince George School District to be hired um, as, as, uh, you know, to work in classrooms. Mm -hmm. So we're really concerned that there isn't a recognition on the part of government that we're in, you know, a crisis in terms of not having enough certified teachers in the province. And um, and Prince George is a big center. That really lets us know that it's getting a lot worse. They have a university in Prince George. They have a teacher education program there. Uh, and yet they're still advertising for un, uncertified folks to go into classrooms. And these are into contract uh, positions. Um, beyond that, we also have hundreds of uncertified individuals filling in for teachers when they're away on a day-to-day basis. So it's a significant issue in the province. And with all of that in mind, we actually had uh, a a school trustee here from SD73 on yesterday, and one of the things that he spoke to was that, uh, you know, you're you're talking about a shortage of teachers that exists across BC, but he was also talking to a a lot of baby boomers who are looking to potentially retire here in the not-too-distant future. Um, Is there a worry that we might see uh, several retirements coming in in the not-too-distant future as some of these people, you know, hit their 60s and look to move on and, and retire and, you know, not be working for their entire lives. If there's a shortage now, is there a possibility that this just gets worse? It, it is getting worse. We can see it getting worse. It's worse now than it was even in September. And so, yes, that's a huge concern. Um, and, you know, what we're seeing is um, retired teachers being coaxed back into the system um, because things are so dire. Uh, and, you know, and we appreciate retired teachers coming back. But, again, that they're not a dependable workforce. They often, you know, don't want to work for 10 months of the year, don't necessarily want to be in contracts, uh, for sure, for a whole school year. And so we need to find, um, you know, basically teachers from other jurisdictions need to be attracted to come to BC. And part of the issue that we're facing is that that's a really uh, big uphill battle when uh, teachers from other jurisdictions have to take such a significant pay uh, decrease to come here. And so, you know, that's also an issue in the Peace region where we see uh, students that want to become teachers going to Alberta to do their education where they can access significant bursaries, $16,000, and they can, you know, and they get paid, you know, at least $10,000 or more 
as soon as they start teaching. And so, you know, it's a competitive uh, field out there for teachers right now, and BC is really losing out because of our low salary. Yeah, and that's an, obviously something we have talked about quite a bit as you uh, continue to go through this um, negotiation process as you work towards a new contract, uh, some eight months now almost without a contract for teachers here in BC. And uh, yeah, you had mentioned before, like I said, uh, BC teachers are, I believe, the second lowest paid uh, when you're talking about the provinces here in Canada. BC is the second lowest for paying its teachers. You're continuing to work through this contract. I mean, is there any hope that uh, things will change here in the not-too-distant future, seeing what's coming through in this budget? And then, of course, as you work your way through this contract negotiation? There, there is hope, actually. There is money, uh, separate money set aside for this uh, settling the outstanding, outstanding public sector um, agreements. And so we're not the only ones bargaining right now. And so that's encouraging when we have a deal. That money will then be put into um, the education budget. So it's not there right now, but it is sitting there. Um, so that's good. We're back at the table on um, February 27th. We have dates all the way through to the end of March. And so we are optimistic that we'll be able to make progress um, at the table. Uh, and it's really important that we do. Labor stability for teachers is really critical in BC. Uh, and we think with an education-friendly government, with an economy as strong as BC, with the government being able to put up surpluses um, to the budget uh, in BC, we think there should be lots of room for negotiations with teachers. Right on, Terry. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Anything else that you want to add while I still have you here? Uh, I think that's about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk about this. Lots of good information and uh, really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. Thank you so much, Terry. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thank you very much, Jeff. You too. Awesome. That was Terry Mooring, the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Yeah, a number of concerns continuing um, with that organization, of course, when you're talking about how much they are paid and uh, just the fact that there is a shortage and, uh, you know, just a number of issues that are continuing to go on. But as Terry was saying, they are back to the bargaining table as of next Friday. So one week from today, uh, I believe was the date. Now I'm second-guessing myself. Did she say the 27th? I think she said the 27th. So that's Thursday. Anyway, late, late next week. The teachers will be back at the bargaining table and hopefully coming up with a, a, the new contract in the not-too-distant future. I could not imagine going eight-plus months without a deal and, and continuing to work. Um, this definitely is something that I think a number of teachers here in BC are weary of and a little bit concerned about as they continue to uh, go to work every day, teach our kids, and make sure that uh, you know they're, they're prepared for their adulthood and uh, you know to take care of all of us when we all get old because we need those kids in order to continue to uh, move our economy forward. Yeah, teachers, they are important, believe it or not. Well, that is about going to wrap things up for me here today. I would like to thank all my guests for joining me. And, of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know that I enjoyed our time while it lasted. Thanks again for everyone who was uh, around yesterday as part of Radiothon, helping us raise $236,000 for the RIH Foundation. It was a great day, and I just wanted to give a shout-out here to everyone who helped contribute to that. And, uh, yeah, like I said, awesome day. I had a pleasure being down at the mall, seeing lots of smiling faces and taking part in some great activities and just being a, a great community member. Really would like to thank everybody here in Kamloops and the region for uh, just being awesome in that regard. I'll be back here on Monday at 9. Have yourself a fantastic weekend, and we'll, we'll talk to you uh, yeah, on Monday.